Where do you think you're gonna put a tree that big? Bend over and I'll show you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some foreign language Christmas films as recommended by Alonzo Duralde of the Linoleum Knife podcast, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about... Arnold Desplachon's 2008 film, A Christmas Tale, as is always the case with um, when I'm doing coverage of a filmmaker or film uh, from a non-English speaking country, I am going to preemptively apologize because I'm sure I am going to butcher the pronunciation of many, if not all, of the actors and or characters names um certainly with uh um french it's it's easier or or a little bit easier to pronounce them or at least read them phonetically than it was for let's say uh south korean with a boon jong ho but i am still going to apologize if i do have any um french listeners or people who are a bit more fluent in french because um it is not a fluency of mine and uh specifically and well i should say especially when it comes to the french language um, proper pronunciation of some of these names and words just really sound a whole lot more uh, beautiful when it comes to actually uh, properly pronouncing them. Uh, but it, it is what it is. We we must press on because I am who I am, and unfortunately I um, cannot change that. And, and I must say, when it came to this film, if you listen to my introductory episode with Alonzo, you may uh, know that I had a little bit of reservations about covering this one because I had seen it when it first came out, I remember going to see a press screening of it, and I really didn't respond to it very well. Um, I had some uh, moral quandaries, I guess, with it, and, and, and not just that, but I, I think when I was younger, I was also looking for something that was a bit more, you know, quote-unquote Christmassy, at least in the sense of what we look for when, when it comes to a, a Christmas film in the uh, American kind of cinematic tradition, which is to say... Um, you know, there's the prevalence now of the Hallmark Channel of Christmas movies and stuff like um, Noel on Disney Plus or uh, the, you know, the, the Christmas Prince movies that are coming out on Netflix. And basically just this idea of sentimentality and um, happiness and lightness and, and, and just sort of um, I, in my personal life, I am one of those per- people who, who loves Christmas, who buys into, you know, uh, what is often a corporate message that is being sold in in the sense of, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, that kind of a thing. And and I don't like um, anything which has to, which brings sort of a a darkness or a cynicism towards it. And that's not to say that those um, other uh, opinions or experiences are not valid. It's just what I really like and connect to is, um, you know, that, that sort of thing that has the heart at the center of it. And that, and that was especially the case when I was younger. And so A Christmas Tale, um, Alonzo described it as acrid, as an acrid atmosphere, really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but re-watching it again, um, I, I had a different experience with it. I You know, my, my eyes have been open to um, not just a, a, a different take, if you will, but also just the, the, the realization, uh, the, the, the reality to the fact that um, this holiday can bring out 
um, different experiences, different emotions and different people, because especially in a film like this, in which it is a very large family, which is coming together, some of whom are, are seeing each other for the first time in years, um, it's not going to be all uh, wine and roses, you will. And um, in, in you know, upon uh, watching it again, I, I did even have a, a little bit sort of um, trouble connecting with it. But then I, I read more about it, and specifically, um, I read the Criterion Collection essay, um, "A Christmas Tale: The Inescapable Family," uh, by Philip Lopate. Um, and I will, of course, link to this on the Facebook page. But reading his analysis of it, and reading sort of um, a bit more about. Uh, um, uh, Desplechon as a uh, a filmmaker uh, really helped me appreciate more what he was doing with this film. And, and, and I won't quote too much from the article, but I will quote this, which is from the first paragraph of the essay in which uh, Lopate says, Desplechon's a master of, en- of ensemble mise-en-scene and a brilliant director of actors, and his interest tends to fan out over many characters whose mixed strengths and flaws jolt the viewer out of easy identification with any of them compelling instead a more complex, deferred, time-capsule release sympathy. And the essay basically goes on to talk about how every element of this film, from the editing to the camera techniques to the soundtrack, are sort of meant to jolt the viewer out of sort of easy identification and um, and connection and just kind of a unsettle you basically and, and not in a in an, an emotional way you're not supposed to be emotionally unsettled or, or disturbed while watching this film but just it, it doesn't allow you to kind of settle down um and and it is interesting in the sense of there are a lot of different filmmaking techniques that he employs at different parts in the movie that I kept thinking to myself why is he using this technique at this moment and that includes um characters directly addressing you the viewer looking into the camera and kind of explaining the backstory um uh Catherine Deneuve's character uh the, the the matriarch of the family Junon she does this to kind of explain the house that she lives in and how they got into it and sort of the history of it um uh Elizabeth the oldest um the oldest uh member of the or the oldest child of of of, of Junon and Abel, I should say. She does this at, at one point kind of explaining stuff about um Paul and and and, and uh the son. And then there's also um a, a part where the iris uh, of the, the 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 framing will look like kind of an iris is closed focusing on one person and then it will expand or you know opening up the full frame or sometimes it won't expand. It'll just go from that that small iris to cutting to a, a a regular shot and then back to this small iris. Um, even the soundtrack changes. It can go from classical music to, um, you know, EDM or, or 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 club music, and then into kind of experimental um, acid jazz, uh, depending on who's listening to it or what's happening or or who are interacting. And then even it can undercut. And I say this in a good way. The soundtrack can even undercut um, what you think should be the emotional truth of a scene. Um, there is a scene when Claude, who is Elizabeth's husband, uh, beats the shit out of Henri, um, Matthew uh, Amalric's uh, character, at, at the breakfast table, because Henri is is an asshole, basically, and is being an unrepentant asshole, and Claude just beats the shit out of him. And yet the way that um, Desplechon shoots it uh, by kind of 
making it sort of a uh, comical in a way. I, I mean, in the sense of like Claude is attacking him, but then we cut to the other family members and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of urgency to break up the fight. And in, in fact, even Simon is, is sort of laughing uh, about it or, or they're kind of like, you know, eye rolling about it. And then there, there's this uh, there's weird kind of jazzy score playing uh, over top of it. You do get the sense that this is not an emotionally urgent scene, that this is kind of par for the course, and that even in a way like, well, yeah, Henri kind of had this coming because he's an asshole. Um, and then when it comes to performances and, and how the plot unfolds, there are scenes in which we start to, you know, to kind of like or connect with a character. Once again, getting back to Henri, and I'm going to probably reference him a lot because uh, uh, Amalric's performance is wonderful, and, and in a way, though this is an ensemble film, in, in a way, you can say this is his film, or at least this is his and um, Catherine Deneuve uh, film, at least the, their relationship and their development at the heart of it is sort of um, has the most, uh, at least I found to be the, the most emotional re- uh, resonance and, and the most kind of a reaction I got out of it. Um, when we start to sort of like him and warm up to him, uh, specifically in some of his scenes with Paul and how he sort of um, makes this young suicidal kid kind of start feeling more comfortable in his own skin and like, well, well, maybe this guy isn't so bad. He does have a scene like that where he is a blatant asshole to Claude or where he's even stealing Paul's medication um, and gets uh, drunk and passes out at the, the Christmas Eve dinner after he gives a toast and calls, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, basically makes a, a scene in which he refers to um, his mother as like the, you know, a, a cunt basically. Um, and so it, it, and then it's, and when we, when we, or other ones, and when we sort of think that we start kind of understanding or connecting with someone there is just a scene later on which kind of undercuts that or changes it or just makes us think like, well, maybe I didn't understand this character or maybe I didn't really know who they were. And at first, when I was watching, when I was in the moment and when I was in this experience, it, that did kind of throw me off a bit or kind of make me wonder, who am I supposed to connect to? Who am I supposed to relate to? Who am I supposed to like in this movie? But you kind of step back, or at least I step back, and sort of realize, like, the, the question of who am I supposed to like is... I don't want to say it's too simplistic, but that's not really the point of this movie. Or at least I should say, when it comes to who are we supposed to like and connect with in a movie that is very much sort of uh, an, an American way to... Um, take in a movie and I don't say that in a pretentious way I don't say that to kind of look down on American movies and sort of um that inherent sort of experience between a movie and an audience member because as I just said earlier in this podcast those Christmas movies that have that sentimentality and that heart those kind of quintessentially American Christmas movies those are the ones that I connect with for the most part so I don't say this in a, in a derogatory or, or looking down sort of way it's just more of um it is interesting to me how um and and I was and that's what I love about uh or I was hoping would come out of this month and these films is just that idea of different cultures and different filmmakers are going to bring a different experience or a different technique to kind of the same thing so this is christmas of course which and you know in, in if you're kind of in your sphere of influence or you're sort of in your corner of the world and you don't really get out of it you do kind of begin to believe 
that everyone kind of celebrates it the same way. Or everyone kind of has the same emotional experience that they that they bring to it. And then you realize that there are that is not the case. And Desplechon kind of brings this complexity to it, which makes a lot of sense because, like I said, this is a a family with um, many different members in it. It's not just the the matriarch and the patriarch, but it's their kids, and then it's a cousin, and it's their kids' kids, and it's even. Um, a, a friend from the neighborhood who kind of pops in, um, you know, uh, Spatafora every now and again. And it's just they all bring their baggage and their complexities to this holiday, to this house, to this family. And it's not all bad. It's not all good. It's happy. It's sad. It's angry. It's morose. It's ambivalent, and it just it goes back and forth because that's how it sometimes is. That is that is an experience that you're going to have when all these people that have these different paths with each other are interacting with each other. I mean, it, it sort of makes sense that Henri and, and Ivan get along very well. I mean, they don't have a they don't have a, a a conflicting past with each other. But then it also sort of makes sense that Elizabeth, who from the beginning tells you that she hates Henri, has these awkward kind of emotional. Um, experiences when she's with him um and, and so it's just it, it's emotionally and aesthetically this film is navigating the choppy waters of a family that all feel different ways towards each other and some of who and and all of whom are basically valid i mean abel is this is this old guy who's trying to kind of err always towards the side of forgiveness and tenderness and love and and i mean we even have uh you know elizabeth kind of mourning the fact that when slash if her mother dies um there's no way abel will ever bar his son Henri from the funeral even though she would hate to see him there as she says um you know being there and no uh you know having Henri there and knowing how she would react to him would rob her of ha- of her mother's funeral she would not be able to mourn properly because of how she would loathe to have her brother there um <clears throat> there are complicated emotions different synapses firing between people and between you know rooms and from moment to moment and that film ha- and this film has to navigate between those and in a way not in a way, but it is actually quite a masterful job that Desplachon does to bring it all together in a coherent manner in which you are feeling something different, not just from scene to scene, not just from day to day, but from cut to cut, basically. And it's really quite spectacular um, because it is a film that really wonderfully balances and conveys the complexities of emotions that are bouncing around inside this house, which is just so pregnant with potential when it comes to conflict or reconciliation or anything. Um, and, of course, just once again, the, the performances are all uniformly fantastic. I, you, you get a clear sense of who everyone is and what their relationships are with each, with each other within just a few minutes of them all kind of connecting with each other um it's wonderful because in you know two and a half hours is quite a lengthy run time but when you have let's see i'm just going to count here one two three four five six seven eight ten let's say ten i don't even want to say main characters but ten uh you know significant characters in this family 
they all have to have time to not just make clear who they are, but who, but what their relationship is to the nine other people in the family. And this film does that in a wonderful way. And there are moments that um, I just didn't like, not because I think they were done badly, but just because it's like, this makes me uncomfortable. This is not, this is not a scene that I want to spend more time in, but that's because of, how clear these characters are and because of the truth of their relationship with each other. For instance, that scene uh, when Henri is, is outside with his mother and they're kind of sitting on, on that, uh, that swing kind of smoking cigarettes and um, they, they basically admit to each other like, uh, you know, that, that they never really loved each other and that she was never really a good mom and he was never really a good son. And as much as I would really, something inside of me would really like to believe like, Oh, they're just kind of, they're playing it off. This is them joking with each other, but really they love each other. It's sort of like, mm, is that the case though? Or could it just be that she is being honest with that? She played favorites, that there were children that she liked more than others. And Henri, she liked the least and was able and, and was not able to provide him what he needed as a child because of that. That's what she was actually feeling. And because of that, he developed into this person that he is. And he's aware of that. And he's aware that he was not a good son because at first he didn't get what he needed. And so he is this just kind of unrepentant, goofy, asshole kind of person that made me feel so uncomfortable. And I didn't want to spend more time exploring that. But that's a testament to this film. That's a testament to the writing and direction of, of, of Desplaison and how great these actors kind of convey concisely who these people are. Now, having said that, and having kind of been quite uh, um, in awe and complimentary of this film, I will say that there were things that didn't work for me, and, and, and not in the sense of I didn't connect with this part or it made me feel awkward, but in the sense of I, it, it, it really seemed to miss the mark or it seemed to... It seemed to be somewhat of a flaw in either the, the writing... Uh, or, or I, I don't want to say a flaw, but kind of a, a weaker point in the writing or the uh, direction, but kind of mostly the writing. And it and it starts with the Elizabeth character who, it, it, listen, it's not the fact that she is morose throughout the entire film. I mean, she does kind of, there. there's kind of a self-awareness in a way where she's sitting down with her father and she's like, why am I so sad all the time? And that's fine. That's not, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with her character. I, I believed in her emotional truth of that. But then there seems to be this um, redemption at the end or this resolution. Like the film ends on her. The final shot of the film is on her kind of coming to a conclusion about something that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. I read a recap that said it, it, it basically she kind of accepted the fact that she has been grappling with the fear of death, which would certainly make sense because hanging over this film is this story of, um, well, the reason everyone is together is because the, you know, her mother has cancer and they're trying to find a compatible bone marrow donor and her son, um, who is suicidal, you know, death is kind of a constant companion to her. And yet the fact that she has been grappling with this for years and for basically the entire duration of this film, the fact that she ends it on kind of a happy note doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because it doesn't seem like enough is done in my opinion to get her to arrive at a conclusion and it's certainly very strange to me that we choose to end the film on her which i guess 
makes sense, at least on paper, in the sense of if there's going to be a an arc or a resolution or a happiness, then you want to end on the person who has been the unhappiest throughout the entire runtime. But I didn't believe in her arc, basically. But I fully admit that that could be that was that there was something that I missed, that it was just a, a scene or a, a piece of dialogue that I maybe wasn't paying attention to or something was lost in translation. But it, I, I didn't seem to see her her arc being very clear. I didn't seem to, to see her resolution come through basically. Um, and also I, I was a bit bugged by the fact that we never really find out what the conflict was that led to her hating, um, Henri so much. Now this is a personal thing. I'm not going to say that this is a flaw with the filmmaking because this may have worked for some of you, I, I must admit, but, um, we certainly see earlier on in the film that there's a there's a break between the two of them, that thing which leads to, what, five or six years of them um, not talking, in which, you know, he is, he is uh, Henri is going into debt, and she basically pays off his debts on the condition that, you know, I, I never see my brother again. Um, and so that explains the separation, but what it doesn't explain is where the hatred of him initially came from and why she ultimately gets to a spot where she says, I never want to see him again. And the family even speculates on there's a lot of talk about it and there's a lot of like wondering about it. And Henri and Ivan even have a conversation about it. And Ivan speculates, could it have been because there was incest between the two of them at one point in their lives? Um, and the idea that none of the family really have an idea about it, the, the idea that even Henri doesn't really seem to have any idea about it. I, I even buy into that. That's interesting to me because especially when it comes to family, you have these rivalries or these conflicts that can last for decades that people can be separated for years because of an initial seed that was planted that has been watered and fostered and in a way even sort of distorted and um twisted until it eventually becomes something that it wasn't entirely to begin with or you know i mean you think of the it's an extreme example but the hatfields and mccoys and how they had this long running feud and kind of what started that but just this idea that a what is what what could be something that's seen in the moment as small or 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 at least something that was smaller than um a a a year's worth of separation that is a truth that i can buy into and that i can believe and i and i do like the idea that it could have been this thing which was going on for such a long time that even the family is like does anyone remember what caused this why is this happening but the fact that we don't actually ever really know tangibly what it was bugged me a bit because I feel like that should be tied into Elizabeth's um, arc or at least why she's able to sort of let go of something. Um, and now I, I realize that part of that might just be because I, I am a guy that likes to, to see a resolution in the film. Um, I'm a sucker for, especially for a Christmas movie that kind of, you know, does have to wade into the darkness to eventually get to the light and the redemption. But um, but also it just seems it would make sense to me that the revealing of that and the kind of, if not settling it, then grappling with it would lead to Elizabeth's, um, you know, kind of, and that, that makes sense to me. So I, I'm, I'm a bit annoyed that we never really do get to the heart of where the conflict came from. But once again, I, I admit that could be something that I just missed. Did I? Uh, and, and I say that not as a rhetorical thing, but like to you, the listener, like, did it, 
did you pick up on something that I didn't? Or did you interpret something that I didn't? Uh, even, even if it wasn't blatantly in the text, is the subtext um, implied uh, that there, you know, what could have been the conflict? Or when you watched it, did you take, what is your takeaway being like, well, I think it was this because that made the movie make sense to me. If that's the case, I do want to hear from you because I am interested to kind of hear your interpretation of that because I think it might, you know, kind of help me settle things a bit. But then the other thing that legitimately bugged me was um, the relationship between Sylvia and Simon. Now, for a film that doesn't want to be overly sentimental, for a film that doesn't want to lean too heavily into one emotion or another, I found the... Simon and Sylvia plotline to be a little bit manipulative, um, a lot sappy, and also a little bit morally troubling. Um, now, the idea, of course, uh, Sylvia is married to Ivan. They have two um, wonderfully rambunctious children, and they've been married for a long time. Uh, but the idea was that at one point, Ivan, Simon, and Henri all kind of were attracted to Sylvia, and they decided, unbeknownst to her, uh, at least Simon, Henri decided, like, we are going to leave her alone, we're going to leave off of her, and we're going to let Ivan have her, basically. We're going to let Ivan pursue her. And Sylvia discovers this because a uh, a friend of Abel and Junon's uh, mother, it's implied that they were um, lovers with each other, kind of... Um, spills the beans and, and just kind of thought that this was a, a, a thing that everyone in the family knew, but Sylvia didn't know. And she feels betrayed and she feels angry um, because it's basically what she says is like, you, you don't get to decide my fate. You three men don't get to decide what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and in a way, by the three of them all kind of deciding, like, Ivan, you were going to have her, then does kind of take away some of her agency in the sense of um, if she did have feelings for Simon, which she clearly did, or if she had feelings for Henri, they were not going to allow her to have them or indulge them. They were going to reject her to guide her towards Ivan. There is a truth in there that I can understand, this idea of that these that two of these men were at least going well i guess all three of them were going to decide that no matter what her feelings were they were going to disregard them in trying to kind of force her to have this one life with this one person there is something to be said about how she has a right to be enraged that to a certain degree her agency was taken away from her this idea of you men do not get to decide my life as a woman. There is a truth to that. Having said that, she is an independent, free-thinking woman. If she did not care for Ivan, or if it would have turned out throughout the, the course of her life that she did not love Ivan, she had the chance to leave him. She had the choice to leave him. She had a choice to do whatever she wanted um 
just because three men decide we think that she should be with one man doesn't mean that she has to do that. She is feel to free and to do anything she wants. And for the film to make us believe that her fate, that her entire life was dictated by this one decision does kind of take some of her agency and her will away from her in in terms of her writing as a character not from her decisions i don't know if i if what i'm explaining makes sense but in, in a way this this character kind of complaining or or griping about her agency being taken away is in a way sort of in inadvertently self-referential because her agency was taken away because her character was written as someone whose agency was taken away not because that was inherent in the truth of her character. Um, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that I really didn't care for. And also, I... Now, I have to preface this by saying I am a fan of the the Severus Snape character in in the Harry Potter franchise, but that sort of seems to be the exception that proves the rule, and that rule being... If you have a character who longs and pines so miserably for someone over such a long period of time in a movie or a, a, a book or any or any type of media, chances are I'm not going to respond well to that person. Um, and I think the film wants us to believe that Simon is a lot more miserable than it seems like he should be. Because there's even a point where Sylvia is kind of talking about him and this decision that they all made, like, years ago. And she describes him as, um, you know, uh, how pathetic he is in his studio. When me, as, a, as a, 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 a viewer, is kind of thinking, this man is a quite successful um, painter and artist. And pathetic is not a word that I would use to describe him. But of course, I guess if the idea is his entire identity, and this is blatant in the text, that his entire identity is tied into his pining for this woman, then, yes, he would be pathetic in that sense, but he did not... But pathetic was not a a, 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 uh, a descriptor that came to me when I was watching him, when I was seeing, you know, his his, his work as he was showing it to Henri in, in, his, in his studio and, and, you know, the paintings that he was bringing to Abel. The... The text in the film, or I should say the implication of the film, or, or, or the truth of the film did not inform me that he was a pathetic person until he recome, here comes Sylvia saying, you are so pathetic because of how your identity has been denied uh, because your identity has been tied up entirely with your pining for me. And he even admits it as well, that like, um, you know, he, he says something to the effect of like, uh, I, I wake and I sleep because of you and how she has her parting line. Like, you know, I, I invented Ivan by being with him. I invent you by not, um, just sort of turns him into a very one dimensional character that I think does a disservice to his character. Because what I was seeing him was this, this cousin who was not a member of the immediate family and yet was still kind of a valuable contributor, was still someone who was around, was still someone who um, added a an objectivity, like kind of an emotional objectivity and outsiderness to this family that this these children and these parents were not 
able to provide to each other because of how connected and how close and how tangled they all they all were with each other. And Simon was able to kind of um, provide an outside perspective and, and kind of step outside of that. And he was actually, I interpret him as a much more complex character until you have the two of them who basically admit, no, I am this one thing. You are this one thing. Your identity is tied up in me. And I thought that actually really kind of undercut him and sold him short. And I and so I really didn't kind of care for that. And this is, I, I realized, the, you know, kind of a puritanical side of me, sort of more of the uh, American culture side of me coming out, but also... Ivan seems kind of blasé when he realizes that his wife has slept with his cousin. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to be pleased, but he also doesn't seem to be upset. And there just kind of seems to be a general um, feeling of let's allow this adultery to stand because we owe it to Ivan because of how... Or uh, Ivan, sorry. We, we kind of owe this infidelity to Simon because of how much of a victim he's been because of how we deprived him of his love um, from so long ago. And that was something that really didn't ring true to me. And I realize that that's me personally, that may be different um, for you based on where you come from or your culture or that kind of thing. But that was, that was a real kind of um, knock for me against the film. And, and having said that it is one subplot, one that, that we do spend relatively little time on in the two and a half hour runtime. So it certainly wasn't enough to, cut this film down or, you know, knock it down a grade or anything. Other than that, it, it was quite a a complex tapestry of uh, emotions and viewpoints that um, I really thought was quite a, at the end of the day, kind of a tremendous film. So um, if you do have any, not even answers, but any interpretations or, or want to respond to anything that you saw in this film or that I said about this film, because as we've just gone through, it's quite complex. There may be some things that I missed. There may be some things that you interpreted differently than I did. I want to hear from you, and it is always easy to get in touch with me. You can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can tweet at me at NolanFixesTeeth, or you can chime in uh, on the comment field of this episode, which is easy to do if you are listening through BattleshipRetention.com, um, or if you're listening on idomoviesbadly.podbean.com, then head over to BattleshipRetention.com. Go to the po- uh, podcast drop-down menu, find I Do Movies Badly, find this episode, and chime in in the comments field. I am always interested to hear from my listeners. So um, that does it for my episode and for my description of A Christmas Tale. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering the finished film, Rare Exports, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 